0: Lights, camera, action. Okay. Ira Deutschman, thank you for coming here today. My pleasure. Thanks. Um, I want to start by uh, uh, by kind of checking in with you a little bit about uh, what happens before you began what you began at Cinema 5, like you were at Northwestern. And you, and you, and a little bit about your earlier life, just to get a little information that
1: I know that I don't know, and uh, I'm sure others don't know as well. I guess it's worth saying that, as it relates to my film career, that there were just there were a, a few kind of formative moments in my life. One of which was the fact that because my dad used to travel a lot, and my mom was actually very young when I was born. Um, I ended up becoming her date and going to a lot of movies with her. Uh, And she brought me to some stuff that was probably inappropriate for somebody my age, but um, it kind of got me hooked on the experience. And then as I got older and my family moved around a lot, I found myself seeking refuge in movie theaters um, rather than making new friends in every place that we moved to. Um, So it just became a regular part of my life. When I went to college, I had not yet decided that I wanted to be in the movie business, but I did know that I wanted to be in communications in some form. Um, Where I went to school, which was at Northwestern, uh, the the department was called Radio TV Film. And I really didn't have a preference necessarily among those three other than to know that I wanted to be somehow in that end of the the world. Uh, I was captured by the fact that the media um, could have such an enormous impact on people's lives by telling entertaining stories. And that's the part of it that I connected to. So I got involved with the film society. I got involved with, uh, you know, just film events in the Chicago area, et cetera. And little by little during the course of my time there, I started centering in on film as what I was definitely going to be interested in. And uh, I had a formative experience at Northwestern when uh, I was working on the activities and organizations board there, and we ended up booking uh, a screening of John Cassavetes' A Woman Under the Influence. And Cassavetes, uh, I didn't really know all this background at the time, but Cassavetes had come up with this plan to try to spread word of mouth on that film by having screenings on college campuses all over the country prior to when the film actually opened in theaters. So we booked an auditorium, which was had to have been a 600 seat auditorium. Cassavetes was going to be at the screening along with Peter Falk and Jenna Rollins. Wow! And uh, and and you know, I produced this event for them, not realizing that it was going to be considered to be the Midwest premiere of the film, and it was my first real world experience with dealing with. Real people in the movie business dealing with having to try to, quote unquote, eventize a screening of a film, which is something that I ended up spending the rest of my career doing, essentially. Um, and we sold out. And I remember getting up on stage in front of these 600 people and introducing John Cassavetes, moderating a and a with him afterwards. Outrageous. Uh, and I was just a kid, you know. So um, What year was that? That would have been in, in 1975, early 1975. Wow. Yeah. So really, you know, that was what kind of led me into the business. When I graduated, I moved to New York because at that point my family was living here. And um, did you grow up here? Uh, I I had roots here, but I consider Chicago to be my hometown. Chicago's the hometown. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, But I moved to New York um, and I was looking for a job. I had no idea what I was looking for. And then I called up this guy, Blaine Novak, who worked for Cassavetes, uh, who was one of the few contacts I actually had in the film business. And he recommended that I go over to Cinema Five because they were looking for a non-theatrical salesperson, and I got the job. And then I guess the rest is history.
0: Right. And 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 non-the- non-theatrical. I know most people know what it is, but non-theatrical basically includes libraries, museums, university film societies. Am I correct about all this? That's right. Yeah. It was
1: rent, rentals. The format took at that time was rentals of sixteen millimeter prints. Right. So like
0: companies like Films Inc. Right. They were part of that. That that uh, ecosystem at the
1: time. Yeah, right? the two the two biggest players were Films Incorporated and Swank. 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 Right. Swank, Swank is still in business. Films Incorporated is long gone. But um, but Cinema Five was one of the bigger distributors of um, more arty international documentary type films. And the moment when I joined the company was when they had just released theatrically. Uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail.
0: Right. I saw that. I, I'm trying to figure out this was the non-theatrical release of Monty Python that had already... Well, Cinema, the, no, Cinema
1: 5 released the film theatrically They as did. Well. Oh, oh, so yeah. they did the theatrical... Okay, see, this is... Yeah. What a big... What a huge success it was to a, land on, right? That's right. And, and so one of the first things that I did was prepare for the non-theatrical release of the film, which was going to follow the theatrical... And that was the easiest movie in the world to to work on because every college campus wanted to play it. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. The the emblem,
0: the yep. emblem of of that of that entire population. Yeah. So and and this gentleman that you worked with, Don R- Rugoff. 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 Yeah. yeah. Explain a little bit about him. You had a fascination with him as well, and sort of looked back a little bit recently at him as well.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, he um, he was a character. Uh, I mean, my first exposure to him, um, I couldn't make head or tail out of who he was or what he was because he was a physical mess. Um, he was somebody who had tons of really harebrained ideas and then tons of really brilliant ideas. And you certainly can't argue with the results because the films that he released were unbelievable. It was you know, prior to my working there, he released films like uh, Z and State of Siege and Gimme Shelter and um, Oh, he did Gimme Shelter. Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it goes back to Morgan in the in the '60s and there just a, an enormous number of incredible movies. The library was kind of unbelievable, and then when i worked there in addition to having monty python and the holy grail out in the marketplace that's when scenes from a marriage was released and then he did swept away and seven beauties and harlan county usa and pumping iron and i mean and i worked on all those movies so it was an amazing education and because he was kind of a tyrant he was not a pleasant person to work for i always had really mixed feelings about him and the company ended up getting into a lot of hot water uh, You know where uh, they owed a lot of money to people. They were losing money hand over fist and there was a big takeover attempt that I won't go into detail about. But suffice to say that in about 1978
0: – Right, that's the end of the tour of duty, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. that's.
1: Uh, he ended up having to – he was forced to lay off everybody who worked in the distribution part of the business. And right. I was one of those people. I got, got it. Okay. I, got, I got laid off. And so I had very, very mixed feelings about him. But for years and years and years, I found myself going back to the lessons I learned working for him, realizing how much I had learned during that three-year peri- three period of time. And, it,
0: and in, in the non-theatrical, right – it was a rental business, right? And then in the – he also – you said he did theatrical on, on Monty Python. So those were those were deals with exhibitors like you would do later on in your career, right? Yeah, well, the,
1: the Cinema 5 was mainly a theatrical exhibitor and distributor. They owned theaters all over the city, all over New York, and a couple in Philadelphia. They, owned, they were theater owners? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, they owned I mean for anybody who remembers those wow, days. Oh, okay. Okay, Yeah. Now, Cinema 5 C- Cinema 5 controlled Cinema 1, Cinema 2, the Sutton, the Beekman, the Murray Hill, the Paris, the Plaza, the um, the 8th Street Playhouse, of the course, Arch, yeah. the I mean the the 5th Avenue Cinema, which almost nobody remembers. Um and, uh, and and then he leveraged the fact that he had those theaters into distribution and ended up distributing all these movies.
0: All New York venues or outside of New York as well?
1: A couple in Philadelphia. He had one on Long Island, um, but almost all of them were in Manhattan.
0: And so it was a small indie
1: theater label. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. But it was a powerhouse theater chain. I mean, everybody wanted to play in those theaters. So in any case, I worked there. The, for the three years I worked there, I started in non-theatrical I ended up doing theatrical marketing. I was in charge of co-op advertising at one point. And then for the last, I don't know, eight months to to, to a year, I don't remember the exact chronology, I was the head of acquisitions, which for- At a, Cinema 5. At Cinema 5, which for, uh, I guess I was about 26 years old at that point. Unbelievable. Is kind of unbelievable. Huge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So at that time when you were head of acquisitions
0: and we're now like in the late 70s, Se- 78, 78, yeah. you're heading, you're heading to festivals all over to acquire. Um, not and, so much. Or no. was it not a festival acquisition business yet?
1: Um, it certainly wasn't as big a festival acquisition business as it, as it became the later. In right. But, um, but I did go to the Toronto Film Festival on behalf of the company. It was my very first film festival. Um, and then uh, we we acquired a lot of films out of the New York Film Festival. The uh, I think I just never got to the cycle where I ended up in Cannes because I never went to Cannes for Cinema Five, but that could have been just an accident of the calendar because of when he was forced to lay everybody off.
0: Right, it got leading into the May May yeah. month. Yeah. So take me into United Artists. I mean, you were there with. My, Michael with Tom Bernard, Michael Barker, Donna Gigliotti, were what was the convergence of the of you because you're all like powerhouses in distribution all in one spot and you play different roles, right and uh, and then ultimately they moved on to I guess Orion classics
1: and then the rest is the your story yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was an interesting moment for me. I post Cinema Five. I really didn't want to be in distribution. I mean, it was something that had happened kind of by accident. Interesting. Um, I, I had, you know, I made movies in college. I was still thinking that I was going to be a filmmaker, and when I left Cinema Five, I had an idea for a screenplay in my head, and I actually spent the next two years writing it, and then eventually co-writing it with a friend of mine, um, and tried to get it made. So during that time to make money, I was doing freelance work. And one of the freelance gigs that I got was, um, for one thing, I did a, a freelance thing at uh, Films Incorporated. Oh, they were okay. They were actually going to try to uh, set up a theatrical division and ask me to come and set up systems for them. And ultimately, when they offered me that job on a full-time basis, I turned them down. And the person who got that job was Tom Bernard at Films Inc.,
0: Oh, so Tom Bernard went to Film Sync. Wow,
1: this yeah. is like, I love this. Yeah, this okay. is like, it's like his, a, you're it's creating a, a genealogy chart here. It, well, that's it's what a, it is to me. I love this stuff, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. so um, so then more time passes, and I get another freelance gig. And this time, it, United Artists hired me to rewrite their non-theatrical catalog. They had been using the same synopses for like 20 years or something. And so I started writing um, small... Uh, uh, you know, like one-paragraph synopses of what must have been 1,200 movies. Wow. That doesn't mean that I saw them all, by the way. I would just, like, <laughs> look them up and look at the old synopsis and jigger it a little bit I or whatever. I love it. I love it. So, so that became a pretty lucrative thing, and it got me in um, into United Artists. And then at the point at which I finished that job, I got a phone call from, uh, from Nathaniel Quitt, who was the person who... Ran what they called special markets for United Artists, asking me if I was interested in a job at UA Classics. And I came in and I found out that Tom Bernard had just taken a job there. And he set us up where Tom was the head of sales for UA Classics and I was the head of marketing for UA Classics. Right, okay. And um, Michael Barker was still working in the non theatrical department there. And then within, I would say, a short period of time of my arriving there, then Donna was hired to be head of acquisitions. Got it. So it was the three of us that had the three prongs of the company. Um, and then Michael came over and became a salesperson uh, at, at, the, at the company. So, you know, during that time, our, our very first film, which uh, quit Nathaniel Quitt had already acquired at the point that I was hired, was The Last Metro – the Francois Truffaut film. Truffaut film, yeah, classic. And it turned out to be an incredibly successful launch of the new United Artists Classics. Uh, and then we went on to do a couple of other films with Truffaut. And, you know, we did some films that just were worked okay. But then the biggest hit that we had during the time that I worked there turned out to be a film called Diva.
0: Oh, you did Diva. Yep. Oh, my God.
1: This, I love this. And, um, Jack and, and that was, there's a great story behind the acquisition of Diva, which is that, uh, we got a phone call one day from Norbert Auerbach, who was running the big company, United Artists, at that time. Or actually, I think he might have just been running, um, UA International at that moment. And he recommended that we take a look at, uh, this movie, Diva. And I believe that it was his wife who really loved the film and was recommending it. And then so he arranged for a print to come in and we all watched it, the whole gang at UA Classics, and none of us wanted to acquire it. I mean, it was like, you know, this was not an average French film. It didn't look like any other French film. We couldn't imagine who the audience was going to be. We right. thought we thought the reviews were going to be terrible. And, um, and so we passed. And then I believe it came back a second time and we passed again, and then I was at the Toronto Film Festival later on that year. and from the moment I got there, I was being told by everybody I ran into you got to see this film diva you got to see this film diva and I was like, I saw it already. It hadn't
0: changed at all between the first time mm, I'm just asking no. the question no the yeah. only
1: the only thing that had happened is that it had opened in France and flopped so um, oh it flopped when it played in France okay yeah. that, that I wasn't aware of that part of its life. Yeah. So, then, so then Jean-Jacques Benex, who was introduced to me in the hospitality suite at the, at, at the festival at Toronto. At, at Toronto, and he started to kind of stalk me. I mean, everywhere I went, it was like, come on, you got to see it with an audience. you got to see it with an audience. So I finally gave in and I went to see it with the Toronto audience and they were just going crazy. And so I ended up making the deal on the movie in Toronto. And I believe it was $30,000 that we paid for the for the U.S. rights to the film. And it turned out to be the biggest hit that we had ever had at, at UA Classics. At uh, UA Classics, yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah I was going to say because it wasn't just the film. I mean, I'm, we all remember the soundtrack, the opera, the the sort of hardcore music uh, track that it had as well. And Ben X, I think, if I remember correctly, was uh, – had a commercial advertising background. It's very slick looking, right? Yeah, yeah, A little bit like the old, like the British guys that like, like uh, Adrian Lynn and, you know, Alan Parker, you know, that kind of look to it. Very and, that, and that's
1: precisely what we thought was going to work yeah. against it commercially was that it, you know, French films were deep. This film was, in, you know, in some ways it was all surface. Yeah. Um, but in any case, it worked. Uh, Jean-Jacques, by the way, came to New York to promote it, which... You know, for him, he was a wide-eyed young person at the time, also, and um, uh, we kind of hit it off. And the and the boy on the on the
0: mobilet with uh, stealing the, the 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 recording on a on a reel
1: to reel recorder and capturing—I mean, all the pieces were so elegant. You know, yeah. Now the movie—I mean, I, I'm I still sometimes and I feel this way about a lot of movies that I've worked on. It I marvel at the way that people remember it in such fond terms. Considering the fact that it was such a struggle to even recognize that there was something interesting there, and then to get it to an audience, and I might add that after the film was a hit in the U.S., it was re-released in France and actually ended up doing business there. Wow! So it so it so it had a it had a, an effect on.
0: What's your theory on why that might have happened? Because it had a great effect in the U.S. And they were like, well, maybe we need to look at this again. Or it just it just was marketed better. Or what do you think?
1: I You know what? I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I have no idea what they did differently. I do think there was an impact. I mean, maybe it just gave them the confidence to go after the movie in a different kind of way, seeing that it was successful in the U.S. Wonderful. Yeah, interesting. And then along
0: comes Cinecom, and you're the founder with John Ives and Amir Mallon. How does tell me about how this this story of you guys coming together to form this, John? I know a little bit as a lawyer, actually. I guess right. Amir a lawyer also, and, and Amir is a lawyer as well. Yeah. And then you guys all came together. I was so the non-lawyer. You were the you were you were
1: the only law attorney <laughs> You were the you were the guy that knew how to actually do this stuff. Yeah. Well, I yeah. was the only one who had experience. That's yeah. true. They were yeah. both they were both film fans that wanted to be in the business. Um, had access to financing. And Amir had not done artiston yet. This is all at the very beginning, right? Yeah, Amir yeah. had never done anything. Yeah, hadn't done anything yeah. yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but that all happened because a mutual friend, I shouldn't say that. That's actually not really accurate. A friend of mine who worked at the Israeli and still works at the Israeli Trade Commission introduced me to Amir, who at the time was involved with uh, the Israeli Film Festival in New York. And Amir and John, who I'd never met either, took me out for drinks and started pumping me for information. I was still working at UA Classics at the time. And I didn't honestly take them very seriously at first. I was just, you know, okay, you know, you want to ask me. I mean, it was almost like a conversation like this where they were just asking me a whole bunch of questions. And to the extent that I felt like I could help them out, I was just trying to be helpful just because of this friend of mine. And then after maybe two or three or four meetings like that, they came to me and said, look, you know, we've got a business plan. We've got financing. We want to start a distribution company. Would you be interested in being part of this with us? And at that point, I was still not taking them seriously. I mean, I was like, well, you know, I mean, if you really do acquire a film and, um, you know, if you actually get something off the ground, then let's talk because I wasn't going to leave a good-paying job for some, you know, dream with two novices. I mean, that wasn't something I was really interested in. So I kind of put up some hurdles for them to pass through. And then one day I got a phone call from them saying, we've acquired this movie and we're ready to roll and we want you to be part of it. And I said, okay, well, let's talk about what the deal would look like. And we started negotiating. And, I, and they said, but there's one hitch, which is that we told them... When we acquired the movie, that it was subject to the fact that we had a really important person who was going to join our team who knows how to market in you know these kinds of movies. and they need they want to have a meeting with you before they conceal the the deal. And so I was put into a very, very awkward situation where they were asking me to meet with these people while I was still employed at UA Classics. And wow. so, the, they, I have to say that I, I believe they kind of exaggerated the situation, the way it developed. And so I ended up taking a day off from work, having this meeting with these two lawyers who were representing the movie. And then as the meeting was ending, I got a phone call from the folks at UA Classics saying, we hear you're, the, you're, you're um, negotiating for another company. And I was like, well, not really. I was told they already have this film. And by the way, I w- assuming that this um, company turns out to be real, I was going to give my notice and tell you guys what was going on. Anyway, it got severed like this. I mean, just that was it. And so UA Classics, yeah.
0: Okay, yeah, so yeah. oh, so they just they they didn't they didn't take any time to figure out what was actually
1: going on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it just, just found superficially. It. it was a huge mistake on my part. I mean, superficially. It looked like I was negotiating on behalf of another company while I was still employed there. And, I, you know, I went in the next day to the office. I said goodbye. And then the next week I was employed at Cinecom. I mean, it's the, it's, As the co-founder. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Wow. So um,
0: so the money was put together on that by John and Amir. I think it was they, mostly because Amir. Because they approached you, yeah. yeah. I think it was mostly okay.
1: Amir – um uh the people who put up that initial financing were people who I think he grew up with on Long Island. Okay. Um and uh and but you know the three of us started building this company and it it worked out pretty well. I mean
0: 1982 we, I mean, right? What a moment also. I mean what you had in front of you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we
1: you know it's funny because on the one hand Great stretch. we were we were very lucky. Uh I shouldn't say on the one hand. I think we were very lucky. The we, we hit the marketplace at a moment where uh, we had no idea that the home video market was going to take off the way that it did and where suddenly everything we did was going to become a hot commodity because the studios could not produce enough product to fill the shelves of all the mom and pop video stores that were springing up all over America. So independent film that had any sort of profile was at a premium and we just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And then the other lucky thing that happened was that the film in question, the one that they ended up acquiring, which was a film that, frankly, I had no confidence in whatsoever. Um, in fact, we'd already passed on it on at, at UA Classics. was a film called Starstruck, which was Gillian Armstrong's Australian musical comedy. That was the first one at that, Cinecom? That was the first acquisition at Cinecom. Wow. And in the process of... Putting together the campaign for that and getting ready and hiring people. As we were doing all this stuff, another opportunity came up, which was that I got a phone call from Robert Altman, who I had already had some dealings with in, this, in peripheral ways. At UA? Um, no, it was actually even before UA. I had met him once in Los Angeles when I was scouting out there to see what, see about the possibility of a job, just this was post, um, post Cinecom. I'm, I'm sorry, post cinema five. Post cinema five. Yeah. yeah. And, and then, um, I had some more dealings with him in between cinema, in between Cause cinema there were two, and,
0: cause there were two years, right? 78 to 80. You had a two year right. gap. That's right.
1: Yeah. And, and, um, through a mutual friend, I ended up at a party at Altman's house And that was the first time Altman realized who I was. And by this time, I was working at Cinecom. And so he had a conversation with me. um, And he didn't really let on what, what it was that he was after. But then I got this phone call from him. He had made a film that was ostensibly made for Showtime. It was for television. But that he always thought was going to be a theatrical film. And wanted to know if I'd be interested in doing something with it theatrically. And the movie was Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean. Classic. So um, I, I ended up bringing that back to the folks at Cinecom. We ended up making a deal with Altman to distribute that movie. So now we had two unreleased films. We had Starstruck and Come Back to the Five and Dime. And the way that theatrical distribution works, particularly if you want to be in a real art film theater you have, to be, you have to be patient because you sometimes have to wait in line if you want a particular theater. And it just so happened that Starstruck and Jimmy Dean opened in New York the same week. One of them opened on a Friday and one of them opened on a Sunday. Which theaters? Uh, Starstruck opened on Sunday at the Sutton and Jimmy Dean opened at Cinema 2. And that was um, on, the, on the Friday. And what's interesting is that both of them flopped in New York. <laughs> uh, the reviews for Jimmy Dean in New York were terrible. The Starstruck reviews were actually slightly better, but, um, but it still didn't do much business. But on the same day, we opened Jimmy Dean in Los Angeles. And for whatever reason, it really went over well there. The reviews were spectacular. Uh, and it turned out that the film was a hit in L.A., and it was enough to give us confidence that the film might catch on, which slowly it started to do in New York as well. So Starstruck kind of faded. It was never, it never really had much impact, whereas Jimmy Dean turned out to be a hit for us. It made... My recollection, it, would, it was something in the neighborhood of $2.5 million box office, sure. which at that time for a film? really small independent film was really good. And... Um, and that's what made the company. If we had released Starstruck without having Jimmy Dean right, you know, right then and there, who knows what would have happened with the company. So it was a lot of luck. A lot of luck, yeah. And then now,
0: you're, now Cinecom is launched. And at that time, you know, you, you've got a whole roster ahead of you, brother from another planet, stop making sense. I mean, you know, these were like such important films. Swimming to Cambodia, really important independent films. The distribution strategy was uh, you you mentioned launching New York, LA on uh, films number one and two. You were also very much a strategist for, for the national pattern of finding the demographics and placement of these films to go everywhere. On those early films, did you go? Did you go nationwide, or 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 did you only boot, go through a platform of a small amount of, of of sophisticated cities? How did you work that in your and how did you expand that? Yeah,
1: I mean, we we used what you would call the classic platform strategy, which is that um, opening nationally for a smaller film made no sense at all, absolutely not, because. <laughs> Uh, that required a level of advertising support that, frankly, would not have been sane given our expectations of box office. So the, the goal was to be as efficient as possible. And New York, more than L.A., New York is, because it's the media capital, because the reviews are more meaningful than anywhere else, New York was the launching pad for these kinds of films with the hope that you would create enough momentum that you would quickly follow up in other major cities and then if those cities were beginning to go well, you could start broadening out the smaller cities. If it turned out that the film didn't do all that well, you would eventually get to all those cities anyway, but you would do it slowly. You would you know, not spend a whole lot of money. After all, 35 millimeter prints were expensive and course, shipping them was expensive. So you would just take the the small number of prints that you had. And you would bicycle them around, and eventually you'd play it off.
0: Right. you'd never, but it, make,
1: a, you'd never make a truckload of release prints for an independent film, right? right. Unless yeah. the film really takes off. So, right. the the film that really made um, Cinecom was A Room with a View, which was a movie that um, it, it sort of came out of left field. The Merchant Ivory folks had been making movies for a long time already, right. and it's while so their films over. while their films had done okay, they'd never had a breakthrough. And if anything, um, there were a lot of people who weren't crazy about their movies. You know, they they were. Uh, so, so in any case, we pre-bought. It was the very first film we pre-bought, A Room with a View. Um, we bought the U.S. rights. It was not a lot of money. Um, I believe that it was somewhere around a million dollars for the North American rights, um, which you know is. If I had to guess, maybe a third of the budget or something like that. And um, and then it turned out that the movie, uh, through some combination of it being a really enjoyable, wonderful movie, getting much better reviews than most of the Merchant Ivory films had gotten up till that date, and I will say incredibly clever marketing, which I think we did. Um, but that combination ended up... With an enormous success, I mean, far beyond our expectations, multiple Oscar nominations, a couple of wins, um, and the movie ended up making over twenty million dollars at the box office. And it
0: sort of set an example in independent film for for the studios and for the birthing of other independents, right? I mean, other competitors in the marketplace. Right? Yeah, I mean, it set a new right. bar
1: in terms of what was possible at right. that at that time, right? Um, particularly for an arty movie like that and it was done incredibly efficiently from a uh, you know in terms of how much the marketing campaign cost which meant that it was enormously profitable for everybody Um, so it was a big deal and that really put Sinecom on the map right 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 that's huge yeah yeah and and then
0: from there like during those years in in the way that you strategized and what you did cuz we're going to move all the way into your current life but um, back then your your uh, your work involved a tremendous amount of understanding like you said you start in New York and LA but also understanding how this stuff reaches people before home video. And there was no, everything was a long lag between what was released theatrically and home video back then. What was the lag back then? It was like a year or six months? Or, there was
1: there was actually no... Um, official rule. Yeah, there was no official rule because nobody pressed it, you know what I mean? It was like the, the, the video w- would... I mean, for the studio movies, which had already entered the land of big wide releases, They might have known what their video dates were going to be at the point at which they were releasing it theatrically, but there was enough flexibility there that if it turned out to be Star Wars and it stayed in the marketplace for a year, that they could just keep postponing the date as long as they wanted to. You know, there was no, you know, no no set rule for it, and in the case of movies like the ones that we were handling at Cinecom, we. Counted on the fact that the film was going to be in the marketplace for a long time. People forget that in those days it was common for films to sit in theaters for months and months and months. Right. And was and was the deal back then in the
0: theater world – because the theater world obviously is upside down by comparison to what it was then – wasn't it, didn't it start with like a, a spread of, of of revenue for the distributor that was at a higher percentage first and then gradually went down week by week by week? But so that the longer that a theater held a film, the more money the theater man made, and the more that the, dis, the more money that came in in the early weeks, the more that the distributor made. Is that, that that's, how it worked back then? Or yes, I, yes, yeah. it did. It's like a ninety ten deal or
1: whatever. Well, well, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's more complicated yeah. than that. Ninety yeah. ten um, makes it sound like the distributor was taking 90 percent it was never 90 percent no but um but the you know the, the the fact that the deal was structured that way actually made some of the movies that we were handling more valuable because our films sometimes would build over time in terms of grosses uh room of the view is a case like that or later hoop dreams which was something i handled at fine line those are examples where the grosses were going up over time yeah so it meant that from the exhibitors perspective since their percentage that they were paying us was going down week after week those films become incredibly valuable
0: right
1: right 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 and then and then
0: at that time uh, the the portfolio was huge because you had Jonathan Demi, you had you had uh, uh, Stephen Frears with Sammy and Rosie get laid, and uh, uh, Miraner Mira with Mississippi Masala. I mean, it was sort
1: of the well, actually the, we we did um, Bombay not Salon,
0: Miss- yeah. you didn't do Mississippi no. Masala, only Salon Bombay yeah, yeah. Okay, and then swimming to Cambodia, of course, mm-hmm. and all of these like emblematic. Into film, independent films, El Norte, um, and then uh, in 1986, your tour of time was le- ended at Cinecom, but it, you didn't go straight into Fine Line from there,
1: or did you? No. You had a break. Well, it was a during that break. It was not exactly a break. Um, I set up my own uh, consulting firm that did a combination of marketing consulting for various companies. Um, but also, uh, I've started developing projects f- to produce. Right. And, uh, and that was when I hired Liz Mann, to, um, who had interned for me at, at uh, Cinecom uh, sh- while she was a, a student at NYU Business School. Um, but Liz came aboard and became literally my right hand, um, maybe my right hand and my left hand. She was um, an unbelievable asset in getting the company started. And, uh, and so we ended up consulting on a wide variety of films. Uh, some of which were genre oriented, some of which were, uh, you know, more of the art films that I was more known for. And during that time we consulted for Sony, um, SVS video who started a theatrical firm. Uh, we did some consulting for, um, uh, for RCA Columbia home video. We did some consulting for Miramax. And uh, and then ultimately, what led to Fine Line was that I was representing, I was acting as producer's rep, and I'm, I was consulting on the film Metropolitan with Whit Stillman. With Whit Stillman, yeah. And and we ended up selling the movie to New Line. New Line said that they were part of the sell to, to us was that um, uh, was that they were going to create a new specialized division of New Line. And, uh, and that that would be who would be releasing this film. So we ended up making the deal with them and then time kept passing and they kept not creating this new division. And so then Wit panicked and said that he was gonna insist that I stay on as a marketing consultant because it looked like New Line was gonna handle the marketing of, of Metropolitan. And, uh, and, and so in effect, with you Wit know, and I as a team we hammering the folks at New Line to do what we thought they should do to release that movie And there was still no new division of New Line And then one day Bob Shea Asked me out to lunch After Metropolitan had already come and gone um, And was somewhat of a hit I mean again it grossed maybe two and a half million three million dollars something like that and uh, Which was considered a big film at that time Sure And uh, and got Oscar nominations Um, And then he he asked me after lunch and he Said, you know, I know that we've broached this with you several times before but you know Would you be interested in running this new division for us? And I said no and he said why and I said I feel like I've been there done that a couple times already I still had aspirations to make movies and and then he said so what do you want to do? and I said well, you know what I'd like to see and I described this company that was going to be a little bit like what Orion had been and Orion at the time was going out of business. They were, you know, they were in bankruptcy and about to be sold to MGM. And I said, you know, there are these American filmmakers like Jonathan Demme and, you know, um, Milos Forman and Woody Allen, who are not going to have a home anymore because Orion's going out of business. And what I think would be interesting is to try to get into that niche. sort of classics,
0: in the, the classics division model.
1: Well, in, in a way, but, but kind of more ambitious, uh, you know, to be, to be taking the marketing um, lessons that I had learned on smaller movies and try to put them to the benefit of these people who were more mid-career rather than new filmmakers or, you know, whatever. And so much to my surprise, Bob said, okay, let's do it. And that's how Fine Line was born.
0: Incredible, because you know, I was just saying, I was talking earlier with uh, one of my friends about about New Line. I was like, you know, I had forgotten that they go back to 1967. Yeah, I was booking films from them when I was in college. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. There. I mean, they. They're. Uh, I had forgotten the generation that they represented prior to the emergence of what would be the companies that would come later not just fine line that you birthed with cinecom before and all that but all of the independent companies including what amir did when he moved on right because when did
1: artisan happen i don't even remember would have been quite a bit later it probably overlapped with my fine line era but toward right. the end of my fine Line era, i think because um, because he was still at Cinecom for a while after I left. Cinecom didn't go out of business to, for another, like, three or four years.
0: Right. And you always had Deutschman & Company thir- through the, the, the middle of these gigs.
1: I see there are breaks,
0: so yeah, you, were, I mean, always, when, you when, were always doing your thing. Right. When, yeah. when I
1: fir- first was doing that consulting um, between Cinecom and FineLine, that's when Deutschman Company was formed. That was the company where I hired Liz and i i've kept it operational all these years through all my many other incarnations and i come back to it when i need it so
0: right you keep you 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 go back to to returning to production and to uh, development and also consulting for for distribution Correct. in general right yeah. yeah yeah so in a in a sense uh, uh sort of similar to some of the ideas behind the people that have done uh, consulting for service deals, like what Bob Bernie did when he was not inside of a group, when right. he had Inwood Films and all of that, right? You know, it was uh, the idea of uh, of of launching a film without it uh, as as a. a, a, a The service for the producers so
1: you would do that uh, uh,
0: in the same way that that still goes on today and you continue to do that today right yeah I mean
1: it still remains my consulting company and it's also my production company and it's the home of any IP that I'm developing and you know that's um, and even in the case where I've owned pieces of companies since then it's Deutschman company that's always been the partner in that in those operations right so the idea for you was
0: always that one piece in uh, uh, being involved creatively behind individual films, being involved in in the engine behind distribution for an entity, but also in the service sense, working for, for either a, a distribution company or an entity that
1: needed your skills to market and sell in place. Yeah, uh, I mean, for me, the, the thing that remains exciting is the opportunity to to say huh this is interesting i'd like to explore this and you don't have quite as much flexibility to do that under a corporate umbrella as you do when you're on your own and in a couple of cases like when fineline was formed and i had that idea about you know a particular niche that i thought that it could could you know um, occupy or later on, as we'll get to when I when I got into business with uh, Barry and Giovanni. Uh, Everybody, uh, yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, you know, it was the, it was the same instinct, which is this is interesting. I'd really like to be a part of this. But at a certain point, when it becomes institutionalized and where where it becomes about sustaining the entity as opposed to doing what I find interesting. I lose interest, so I don't think I'm ever going to make that those kinds of mistakes again. I, when people, I've been offered a lot of things in terms of, would you like to run this? Would you like to be in charge of that? And my answer is, I don't want to run anything. I'm, well, it's
0: because it's sort of. I would imagine that in the in in the post theatrical streaming era, you're sort of the uh, emblematic of of the history
1: of of where where things came from and where they're going right in a sense right yeah i mean i just always am looking for new things new opportunities new challenges you know it's and and just things that interest me and that the luxury of being in a position to do that is is not lost on me i you know it's i'm very lucky that i'm in a position to be able to be you know to just chase whatever i want to chase exactly and not necessarily be within a structure to do it at any given
0: time right because tell me more i mean i know you know i i've I've followed your life for a long time because in a weird way i you know one of the backstories for me i think i mentioned to you was that i i worked in in 1984 my first job out of college was working at the somerville theater as a projectionist Mm -hmm. under garen daly and we and I, i remember playing stop making sense like over and over and over again and seeing cinecom come up and it was like they were like the emblem you know for independent
1: film you know and then uh, that might this, that's one of the the i have to just interrupt you and say that that stop making sense remains one of the most fun movies i've ever worked on right and i i mean not just sitting through the movie a thousand times which by the way i still do every summer in traverse city michigan they have seriously where they have an outdoor screening on lake michigan and traverse city every summer at the very beginning of the traverse city film festival wow and i've been there the last two years it's just so much fun but but aside from because it, it
0: was the live show film right there was stop making sense And then there was the one-man show with Swing to Cambodia. Yeah. And then there was the one with – We did one with Laurie Anderson. That's the one. Yeah. Did you distribute that as well? Yeah. Okay, great. So you do this – you do Stop
1: Making Sense as an annual ritual. Uh, Well, yeah. I mean they do it. They do it. But I show up. You show up. That's fantastic. (laughs) I love it. But anyway, what I was going to say is that, that it was fun sitting through the movie like a thousand times. But the marketing of that film was enormous fun. There was so much creativity in terms of what we were able to do because nobody had really made a success of a concert movie since Woodstock. And it was just the, the idea that we could get out and, and, and get that film to the MTV generation. MTV was new at that time. Um, and, and work with all of these radio stations. And it was just it was so much fun to work on.
0: 1984, 85, am I right? It's about right, yeah. Right? Yeah. Cuz that's when I recall seeing it come up on screen. This is mm-hmm. really the this is the early moment in that movement, right? You're reaching uh, you know, people who were coming out of college at that time and teenagers. Yeah. well M- and-
1: MTV helped us tremendously to cross that film over to a younger audience. We had the art crowd to begin with because the reviews were so amazing, but uh, but MTV helped us to get a to get a younger demographic in the door. Awesome,
0: yeah. So now we flip to re, to Redeemable, which is your uh, producing entity, right? Or, or Well, it was a partner. Consider- it,
1: it started out, it was my company, and it was just a DBA of Deutschman Company because Deutschman Company sounds awful in terms of being a production company. Right, right. Um, my wife was the one who convinced me to use that as my corporate name because she said if somebody wants to look you up, they won't know all these cute names that you come up with, put your name on it. And I was like, ah, okay. But um, but yeah, Redeemable was was the name we came up with for the films themselves. But then eventually it became a partnership with uh, Peter Newman and Greg Johnson, and we were developing films as a, as a team for a period of time. But
0: under that name. Yeah. The, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there were films like Kiss Me Guido, 54, CO54, Lulu on the Bridge, which I actually – I ended up working on. I know Paul Oster really well. Mm-hmm. We did some work on that back then when I was back at Technicolor and and Barbara Koppel you worked with and interesting, yeah. interesting, a lot of great independents, and so that lasted and you were doing that and then and then this is really mostly about producing but also consulting
1: for distribution. But you did. Mostly I was doing that on the side. Yeah, but, I was still but redeemable. Repping. Was
0: for focused on
1: producing. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was still doing some repping and some marketing consulting during that time too. So, so that
0: lasted for five years before you take another small break
1: before emerging. During and that that small break was not a break. <laughs> wasn't. A I was break. recruited, and again, it was just one of those things. I right. I. I, I I got an offer that seemed really interesting, and it was a company called Studio Next, and they were among the earliest companies that were um, doing online streaming. It was uh, it was set up to be a um, you know a, a sort of a television network that was producing and distributing online only a bunch of, uh, you know, episodic things that were taking advantage of the new digital technology so that they were done on incredibly low budgets. And we were making deals with um, filmmakers, young filmmakers, who we would like literally – we had the equipment, we had a studio, and we would just say, okay, come up with a concept, and then we would deliver new episodes every week. And I have to say that – so so the company existed before I got involved – But I was really intrigued by it, and they needed somebody to run it. So I was recruited to come in as the CEO of this company. And that's why Studio Next. Studio Next. Um, And then this really interesting thing happened that um, presaged the whole dot com bubble bursting, having to do with the fact that the success of Studio Next, and it was incredibly successful by one metric, which was we had a lot of eyeballs. But it was at a time when bandwidth was really very limited. And we were having to buy bandwidth. To As we grew, the bandwidth got more and more expensive. And it turned out that at that moment in time, the way the economics worked, not only was this ideal not scalable, but every time we increased our audience, we lost more money because of how expensive the bandwidth was. The we, delivery. The delivery. And so it was like heaping more equipment and more bandwidth and we had this deal with Akamai that kept getting more and more expensive. And the um, so little by little, the investors in this company um, started to crack down. And so in order to try to make money, which the company was losing money like crazy as it got more successful, I started to shift the direction of the company to be more like what I had done in the past. So we started – working with some filmmakers to help them get independent features made and uh, digitally using our equipment and our our crews as kind of a backup. And then also getting into distribution and marketing, consulting, repping, and eventually into um, uh, a, a little bit of actually representing filmmakers, where we would sign them up to be manage- managers. So I started morphing the company in that direction just to make enough money to help support this other side of it. Then the in- ahead of its time basically, am I right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean definitely way ahead of its time. And then the investors pulled the plug. They said that's it. Lay everybody off. We're done. They owed me a ton of money which I didn't get paid, and so I walked away owning all the IP. Basically, I took that as a settlement. And at that moment, I ran into Barry Rebo at Sundance where um, he and Giovanni were pitching this idea for a digital cinema network. uh, And their idea was really incredible. It was, you know, this this new digital cinema thing happening. This technology is finally um, at a point where you could actually make the case that the presentation is theatrical quality. Our idea is to take these projectors, put them into alternative spaces, and create theatrical venues out of them. And I was like, huh, it was one of those moments, light bulb bulb over my head going, these guys have a really good idea, and I could be really helpful to them because I know about the theatrical film industry, and they don't. I knew Barry, by the way, from way back to the Cinecom era. It's a whole long, long story. But, Interesting, yeah. yeah. But, but in any case, um, he was Mr.
0: Technology. Yeah, Mr. Mr. High Definition. M- Mr. HD. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean, that was literally his uh, sort of became his his identity. Yeah.
1: Right. So, um, so in any case, uh, I ended up talking to them about creating a partnership, and I ended up merging what was left of of Studio Next into the entity that they had created, which was called Emerging Cinemas. And we created emerging pictures. That's how it happened. So um, so it became a combination of a digital cinema network that we were going to have to try to raise money for and, and implement. But simultaneously continuing all of the activities that I had been working on at, at Studio Next, which included marketing and distribution. It included repping films. It included continuing to try to get films made, et cetera. So... Interesting, interesting. So,
0: um, the I I got sort of um, caught up in the idea that what you guys were doing was definitely like delivering to venues that you were set up to do. But were you? Also building a model to deliver to theatrical venues that were already set up or emerging pictures was a
1: wide array of things,
0: right? The original concept. Describe conce- how it worked. Yeah, the yeah. original
1: concept was that it was yeah. going to be alternative spaces. But then as we got into it, we realized that there were a lot of art houses, existing and in some cases thriving art houses, who were worried about the, 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 the all this talk about the digital transition, but also looking for new ways to be able to play smaller movies that they felt like they couldn't have played otherwise. And we began to shift our pitch a little bit to encompass their business model as well. And it turned into what was essentially a delivery system. In some cases, we got involved with getting the projection into the theaters in some of the earlier theaters that we got involved with. But in other cases, They had their own digital cinema projectors already or we would help them find a digital cinema projector that they could buy and then what we really were selling was our server and our server technology because what we were doing which nobody else was doing was delivering feature films by broadband and it meant that we experimented with a lot of different codecs and a lot of different compression schemes and um, until we was that a
0: live delivery or no no it was, it was not. store, store it was forward stored forward okay and then played back at the venue so you pushed Correct. it there and
1: then it was played there right so and, so a film okay. so a theater would um book films through us because we were acting as an intermediary between independent distributors and independent um, venues they would book it through us we would clear it with the distributor and then overnight we would deliver the file so it was sitting on the server and then they'd be able to play it and the
0: distributors didn't need they, they didn't they didn't get into that business on their own is that
1: what it was why they needed you right is that well because you were all there had the, to be some sort of technological standard that everybody could agree upon and we became for a brief moment in time that standard okay
0: and what were you delivering at the time as the standard just out of a uh, from a, from a curiosity standpoint for, you know, and, and is that still, is, is is emerging continuing to go on or that no, morphed emerging in, is, into something new, right? Well, it
1: was, we, we sold the company about, it's close to five years ago to right. a Canadian entity that had a different idea of what they were going to do with the technology. And ultimately they pulled the plug on it. It's It's out of business. But the idea at that time when you started,
0: there were there were the majors, either then or maybe five, six years prior, there was a debate at that time about whether distribution was gonna follow hard media, satellite, or internet.
1: Yeah, right? I think I think it's I mean, easier to talk, like, yeah. I think it's easier to talk about it in terms of the fact that during this whole period, we knew that the major studios and SMPTE and the Academy and all these other entities we're having tons and tons of experiments and meetings, et cetera, to set a digital cinema standard, right. which had not been set yet. Correct. So yeah. we were doing this before the DCI standard had been created. Right. And um, and the files that we were using were VC1, which was a Microsoft technology. Um, and they were encrypted so that, uh, you know, not to the extent that the studios would have been happy, but encrypted enough that... Uh, well, it was not going to get pirated. You had a yeah, 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 right. And there was no analog hole on the the box anyway, so the, there was no way to get it out. Um, but but in any case, uh, and and they were uh, 1080p files, which uh, you know if you put that on a really good digital cinema projection projector, even with very large screen sizes, the average audience cannot tell the difference.
0: Right like, between that and and what is today the JPEG 2000 right. and the all the other. Right.
1: DCI standards, yeah. Interesting. So then... And at its height, you should yeah. know that we had over 300 theaters that were on our system um, representing a good chunk of the art film business. And just about every art film distributor was doing business with us, delivering films to these theaters. And that included Sony Classics. It included you know, Magnolia. It included ThinkFilm. I mean, we were working with just about everybody.
0: But going... All over, including independent and specifically including independent cinema venues right. that were existing cinema venues. That's correct. So would places like, I'm just going to throw some ideas out there, places like the Brattle and uh, old, old theaters in Boston and Seattle and, and sh- you know,
1: all over the country we're, were using these? Yeah, we had theaters. We were never in the Brattle, but we were in the um, – Name another independent theater. Coolidge and Corner. We were in the Coolidge. Yeah, yeah. the Coolidge yeah. is a classic yeah. theater in Boston. Yeah. We right. We were in the Coolidge. Good marketplace. Yeah. We. I mean, we in every major market at one point or another we had a venue. Right, and but now you know
0: you've you've spent all of these years overlapping since eighty seven at Columbia University as a professor talking to uh, young uh, filmmakers about the span of time. Right. So, I mean, and you are and have inhabited that entire span of time. What is your feeling now about where we're at in the theatrical business and having having changed so much and 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 uh, uh, the idea of the long term vision for what takes place with the back and forth with uh, uh, with the streaming world, which which has taken a front seat? How yeah. do you see the future? Because I always get into discussions with people about theatrical theatrical business, both domestically and globally. And they're like, ah theatrical business is dead. I'm like, well, no, not
1: really. It's dead for like the fourth time. For the fourth time, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean it's uh, that that's the thing, and that's what gives me confidence that it's gonna survive is that uh, theatrical has been declared dead many times already. And right, of course, you yeah. Know, the advent of radio, the advent of television, the advent of home video, the advent of the DVD. I mean, every time there's been a new technology, it just takes time for the for a new equilibrium to create itself. And I think we're just in one of those in-between periods. And I think it's sorting itself out to some extent already. You do see already that there's a little bit of a comeback in terms of theatrical. And I'm talking mostly about on the independent level. Yeah. Um, but the, you know what, if if I were the studios, I would be thinking about trying to figure out a completely different business model for theatrical because I think that the way the road that they're on right now is simply not sustainable but on the independent side of the spectrum i think that the audience is solid i think there's the opportunity to grow it i think that the um there's clues already about the things that work and one of the things that i think has to be rethought on a fundamental level is whether theatrical should go to a subscription model there is no doubt that there was a box office bump a major box office bump last year because of movie pass Now, MoviePass had a really stupid, unsustainable business model that is the reason why they're not a force anymore and the reason why they're gone. But I think that some version of that is the reason why Theatrical is going to survive. I believe to this day that the reason why Theatrical continues to survive all of these threats over many, many years is because it's a completely different experience than watching a movie at home. It's not like these two things compete with each other. People like to do things out of their homes. And as overpriced as movies are, it's still one of the least expensive out-of-the-home activities that you can do. And when people go to the movies and have a good experience, all they want to do is do it again. They want to, they want more. And I think that last year when MoviePass gave the impression to millennials that there was this incredible bargain where you can go see that many movies without it costing incrementally more. I think a lot of millennials started going to the movies in a in a way that gave them a taste for it, that actually made them want more. And I think it's unfortunate that now uh, a lot of that has disappeared for the moment. Somebody's going to step into that void. And AMC already is doing it in a a way in which it has actually I think sustainable on a certain level. Well, Even, what what are they doing that's different? Well, first of all, it's priced higher. Um, mm-hmm. Theirs, I believe, is something like $19.99 a month rather than nine ninety nine a month. Okay, their subscription model. Their okay. subscription model. Okay. It's limited to AMC theaters instead of being all theaters. Okay. Okay. Which is not such a limit considering how many locations they have, right? If you have AMC theaters near you, and if your taste is more along the major studio rather than the independent road you can probably see everything that gets released by the major studios by having an AMC pass, right? And then I think they limit you to two films a week, which is not that much of a limitation, frankly, if, assuming you have a life. Um, so, uh, but, but I think the, the part of it that we don't know because they're not revealing it is what's under the hood, which is to say, have they negotiated special deals with the distributors to account for this? Are they just making up the difference in terms of their lost revenues with concessions? Um, I know that the uh, folks at Alamo Drafthouse are experimenting right now with a subscription model. Interesting. Okay. So, uh, you know, so so I think that this is it's going to be interesting to see where it goes from here. But I do believe that subscriptions are the future of theatrical. And then the other thing that I think is the future of theatrical is using the venues. As the storefronts that they are to be uh, a a form of sponsored entertainment. Um, And I'm not talking about the stupid commercials that are at the front of the, you know, that AMC and the other chains show. Cinema
0: advertising.
1: Yeah, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the fact that a company like Amazon might look at a theater chain as being both a branding opportunity, a local branding opportunity. A distribution center for um, their uh, for for deliveries and a showcase for products. Um, you know, there's a lot of independent theaters that sell DVDs and books and other paraphernalia. If you go to a major chain theater, they're not only selling popcorn, but they're selling you know all kinds of souvenirs and whatever. And they've you know tried to extend their product lines into things like game rooms and stuff like that it's not a stretch to think that these places could be showcases for all kinds of technology, software, et cetera, et cetera. So so I think those are the two keys to the future and some combination of that and the urge of people to want to be with other people,
0: real real
1: people. Right, (laughs) because when I think about this, one of the things that I haven't seen in the move, but I'm
0: curious how you see the evolution of this is streaming essentially or the, or the, the those that own that world um, have developed a, 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 a place for a portion of independent film that got briefly lost, right? In other words, like, you know when there was the independent budget zones in in the higher numbers that were that went away, I'm not talking about, Fifty million, but 10 20 million dollar budgets or or lower than that um where then all of a sudden like uh there was a disappearance of that old mid-level independent so it went to ultra low budget and ultra high budget yeah. and streaming sort of brought back a commitment for feature filmmakers to cover a range depending
1: upon the needs of the project. But that's exactly what happened in the 80s when VHS had its boom. I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's, it's almost a, like it's deja a, it's, vu.
0: It's a renewal.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's why I say, you know, if you really look at what we call the streaming model, yeah. what we're really looking at is the same home video model that existed in the 70s. I mean, I'm sorry, in the 80s. Um, where you would join a mom and pop video store and you'd be a member of the club and then you'd have these shelves and shelves and shelves of things that you could rent. And, and you know, it's the same screwy thing.
0: It was wait for it to come out on video, right? Wasn't, that was the old saying. Yeah, right? like, I mean, but, but like, the,
1: different, the only difference is you don't have to get up off your ass to, to get access to it anymore. You don't have to go to a store. So, you know, yes, subscription models have existed for a long time. They've existed on cable, they existed in video stores. But now it's being—I mean—the the fact that the pipe is directed directly into your television set, as opposed to having to get up off your couch, the fact that the quality of what of the presentation is much better than it used well, to be. They keep
0: driving a technology model to deliver 4K UHD, right? Which is, and they're tracking the manufacturing, so they're helping monitor manufacturers by letting the public know if you want to look at this stuff, you have to look at it this but way. But this is the
1: greed that destroys business models. It's because, too bad, right? Because, yeah. Be, well, I mean, look, you know, with the the, the reason for software to continue to get um, into higher resolutions is to sell new hardware. And they tried doing that when they went from VHS to... to DVD, which worked, they tried doing that when they went from DVD to Blu-ray, which didn't work. Exactly. Um, You know, I mean, it's it reaches a point where people go, "Eh, you know, what? I don't need anything better than this. So I, you know, we'll see what happens. Right. No. No. No.
0: No. But the standards become crazy, and it and it and it becomes. it changes the marketplace for making movies too. You know, it changes so many things. But the feeling is, it's like, oh, don't worry, this is all being
1: financed by the global streaming model. Mm-hmm. So, but Col- I feel Columbia, like Columbia TriStar Home Video financed *Sex Eyes and Videotape*. Okay, not unlike Netflix making, you know, a Spike Lee movie or That's something right. like I didn't that. Think about that. Yeah, they financed that movie. And then, at a point when they realize that theatrical actually makes something more valuable, guess what? Garcia Columbia Home Video did. They sold the theatrical rights to Miramax, who released it theatrically, and it sort of set this whole thing in motion where, you know, the 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 tail is wagging the dog. I mean, it's it. I feel. I mean, it makes me feel very old, but I feel like deja vu. It's like this. You know, I've been through this this because
0: that's what this is right now
1: what we're doing right now
0: is uh is another wave of what already happened right See, i never it's it's interesting to hear this because you don't really think of it that way when you're looking at it but then if that's the evolution then would there not be then an arrow that would point out of the home streaming then back to the theaters itself like you were describing and i guess that was where you're talking about this idea of the amazon theater venue or that kind of thing where they're like they have content so now give them give people a place to look at it at home but also build a place for them to go be social and see it in public is that even even without
1: even without amazon having literal physical venues every time an amazon movie plays in a movie theater that logo comes on the screen and reminds people that they should be subscribing to amazon prime it's like, you know, it's a commercial. And, and that, you know, Netflix has been the resistor in this in the sense that they have been very loud about not believing in theatrical. And yet they just bought a movie theater in in Los Angeles. They bought the Egyptian. And, you know, what they're going to do with it or why they did it, is it just, um, you know, superficial uh, you know, a way to showcase, to, you know, to showcase, but also in a way, given the fact that it's in Los Angeles in such a prominent position, is it just a way of stroking the Hollywood world? You know, people like Steven Spielberg, who have been so vocal about Netflix's business model. Um, so it, is it a beard for what they're doing? You know, it, but I just, I think that the more that these, Streaming services need to differentiate themselves from each other in order to drive new subscriptions. The only way they grow is if people continue to subscribe. Continue to subscribe and they find new subscribers. And if that's the case, they have to be able to make the case against all the other streaming services that they're a vital streaming service. And what better way is there than to have what just was in the movie theaters? So I, I, I really do think that that um, theatrical is going to be part of the equation in some ways. You already see with what Netflix did with Roma, right? That that you know that they're at least opening the door slightly we'll see what they do with the scorsese film that's coming up you know the irishman the irishman of course which is so a inc- huge budget huge budget i mean do they do they really not put that in theaters i doubt it i mean i think they'll do something what what how, but they go day and date though don't they well they, if they go day and date they will they cannot play in the major chains is marty going to be happy with that is that going to give them enough impact in the market to to you know, to actually make this into something that's really an event. Not, not, not a great option, is it? No. I mean, with Roma, they could get away with it because that was a truly an art film. Yeah. But so they, they could avoid the major chains and still have an impact, but with a hundred million dollars Scorsese film. Well, this is
0: where I wanted to ask the next question, which is for me, very important. And I think for everyone who just loves movies and loves the cinema in general, the idea of, of, of the sort of emblematic statement about what people talk about, even in reference to financing, marquee value. Marquee value is star creation. What is your feeling about that in terms of the generation of the way in which streaming takes over and creates volume, but then I guess there's still star creation in blockbuster films that are out there, right? So you still have things that are movie theater centric. There's still a marketplace for that. But in general, how does that, is there a thirst that gets created to uh,
1: uh, create star power, not just
0: in? tentpole
1: blockbusters. Well, I mean, what's interesting is that tentpole blockbusters are generally moving away from star power. I mean, you, you don't need a movie star when you put a mask on somebody. You That's know? true. Right. Um, but the, uh, you know, when you talk about star power, the the thing that used to work really, really well, um, you know, and, and this is the cynical, um, the cynical IRA that knows that marketing is everything which is that the whole auteur thing was just creating brand names that allowed you to to somehow create a continuity that would bring you an audience for because the director type of can film.
0: repeat over and over again Pedro Motivor Woody Allen whoever it is right right, yeah. right. Robert Altman yeah, yeah. it was the old it, days yeah. so
1: so I think I think that in a sense things might um, the, the, I think the healthy thing that's happening now that used to be a problem in the US and less so in the rest of the world, but that used to be a problem in the US is that we don't have a a stigma about television anymore and people go back and forth between movies and television constantly. And I'm talking about both the stars, the directors, the writers, the producers and the bar has been raised for
0: television as a result, creatively and artistically. Well, well. yeah, but, but
1: it also then acts as a farm team in a certain sense, to get people's names to be known, so that then you can turn around and use those brands in a wide variety of different ways. There are tons of people who are well known because they're in some um, streaming television series, who are probably dying to make a movie that would go onto the film festival circuit or to be Oscar worthy or whatever. And those people would never be household names if it wasn't for the fact that they had been on uh, in a streaming program you know right and they get recognized in that space and then all
0: of a sudden they get the opportunity to then become marquee value billboard value and theatrical as well yeah i mean people
1: still dream of winning oscars you know it's like that streaming or no streaming netflix or no netflix people want oscars and um, as long as that's true it means that that we as independent producers have a currency available to us to you know we're we're going to give you something of real quality that you can have as part of your 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 resume that you know may or may not end up winning awards but gives you a, makes you part of that conversation and 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 in that light of
0: that because we talk about obviously we talk about the the English language market right it's like you know so so important but now one of the things that streaming is doing is opening the world to Taking the brand of Netflix or Amazon, perhaps especially Netflix, and making local language content for those markets and infusing capital into those markets in a way that the old theatrical
1: business did not do for the local market—is that correct? It's, How do you feel about it's that? It's sort of correct, but here we go again in terms of like everything new being everything old being new again which is that um in the 50s and 60s the major studios made major investments in foreign language films because they were growing their international business Um, united artists put you know like the catalog that i talked about earlier that i rewrote had a bunch of fellini films truffaut films godard films i mean you name it and 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 i mean italian french german why swedish why because the United Artists had a powerhouse international distribution business, and they knew that they needed to create indigenous product in order to continue to grow that business. It's exactly the same thing that Netflix is doing.
0: Right, because the studios did have regional uh, uh, hubs, yeah. right? Like, like there was, I remember I used to work with the Brazilian director, Bruno Barreto, a lot and and i remember that in brazil or in south american territories there were there were studio presence just for that marketplace but you didn't really think about it it was but you knew that it was there and and there was a political
1: purpose then which is the same political purpose now which is that in most countries they don't want the american industry to have too large uh, a market share they want to they want to preserve Their indigenous film industry, and they don't want to be dominated by Americans. So what do you do in a situation like that if you want to grow? What you do is invest in the local film industry to placate everybody, and that's what United Artists was doing in the old days, and it's what Netflix is doing They're doing it
0: right now. It's just starting, right, in a sense. Yep. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, for me, it's like I like the way you refer, the way you connect the wave of what took place in home video to – to today with with the the home the the model, but what I'm still wondering about is is that in in Europe, concurrent with all of this, because you get engaged fairly significantly with things outside of the U.S., how do you see the 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 way in which each of the territories in Europe handles the exhibition business? Because one of the things we haven't talked about, we've talked about production, we've talked about distribution but i know you go once a year to art house convention mm-hmm. and they say t- they try to talk about the health of exhibitors how do you see the differences in exhibition uh, uh and uh and the passion for exhibition being a, a surviving business uh, in in both domestic and international marketplaces and how do you how do you uh, what's your feeling about that today
1: well i mean Based on the, the conversations that um, happen at the Art House Convergence every year, which is an event held in, in, in uh, right before Sundance in Utah, yeah. where uh, there were 800, over 800 delegates this year of people representing art houses all over the country and some international that joined in as well, um, they are really upbeat. I mean, they complain a lot because, I mean, the, it's not an easy business. But what they're upbeat about is the fact that, you know, if as long as you're mission driven as opposed to totally profit driven, which most of these are not for profit organizations, they love the fact that they're branching out audience wise to younger audiences. There's a wider array of films that are available to them on a certain level when something like Roma happens where they in effect get exclusivity for those films because the chains won't play them. Um, that's, that's a boon for them. Right. Um, they're incredibly open-minded about trying to understand where the business is heading and, and, um, and making adjustments for it. And, and the fact that they banded together and learn from each other is a big deal. I mean, it used to be in, in the old days, so hyper competitive, even when in fact there was no reason to be competitive. And now I think that there's a, a sense of um, everybody wanting to create a larger something out of this this need, because all these people are just mad about movies. They just love the movies and want to do everything they can to make it happen. The difference is that they have to do it entrepreneurially in this country. Um, they, you know, turning toward, not-for-profit contributions, grants, memberships, um, all sorts of revenue streams that um, are not necessarily entirely dependent on admissions. In the rest- On on box office. On box office, Right, exactly, yeah. Um, Whereas in the rest of the world, there's actual government support and lots of things put into place to help support those industries, like in
0: like in in when you walk around in, in the, like the Left Bank in Paris, or if you're like in certain cities, there's like a slew of of independent cinemas that are still alive. So those in in urban centers in Europe, they're being supported by the government.
1: Yeah, in France, well, I mean, supported indirectly. It's not like uh, they they necessarily have. Uh, you you know, direct subsidies for those theaters, but they're supported because, and France is probably the best example of it. Amazing, yeah. But but they um, have laws in terms of how many non-French films can be shown in theaters at any given time. So there's a quota system. There's a support system for indigenous filmmaking that comes from the broadcast outlets, and the quotas that go along with that. Um, You know, I think the things that they're dealing with there they parallel some of the things that are going on in the US but there's slightly different issues i mean number 1 is to what extent do territorial borders still exist in europe you know in a world in which the internet tears away geographic borders and you have the european union in existence and enormous amounts of cooperation that go on because of that right the question is these quotas are still going to you know be France centric or are they gonna are they gonna start thinking in terms of just a total euro model um, there's a lot of thing, a lot of issues that they have to deal with and and you know to some extent the incursions of Netflix and Amazon and others into these markets are gonna press the buttons I mean they're they''re, they're well, going to ignite things right right exactly and, and it already has I mean the fact that that Netflix and the Cannes Film Festival are at war with each other and have been for two years now, Talk about that. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it comes down to the fact that uh, I guess it was three years ago. Almodovar, I think, was
0: in, was involved in the in the middle of the swirl of it all. There right?
1: were, I mean, there were yeah. like four movies. I believe it was three or four movies in the competition that were Netflix movies, and the um, the world of film in France completely rebelled. And said, how can you be showcasing these movies that are never going to be given a theatrical release in France? Now, mind you, there's a law in France that you cannot put a film onto a streaming service. And I think it's for 24 months after theatrical release, specifically in terms of, of streaming. And so Netflix basically says, fuck that you know, we're just going to release it in streaming and it's not going to have a theatrical release because of that law. And right, so, because they can't handle those types of delays and lags. They can't, they op- don't want, they, there's they no have, way to operate that way. They have no not. interest in having a 24-month lag time. Of course So, So basically, as a result of the the blowback that the Cannes Film Festival got after that year, they announced to the world that um, that Netflix films, if they were going to adhere to this idea of, of day and date releasing and, and going to streaming without a theatrical release, that they were gonna be prohibited from being in the competition at Cannes. Now that doesn't mean that the Cannes Film Festival wouldn't have played their films out of competition or in a sidebar or in some other way, but when Netflix heard that they were gonna be excluded from the competition, they basically said, then we're not gonna give you any of our movies. And, of course, they had Roma coming up and Scorsese coming up and, you know, I mean, blah, blah, blah. So it means that those films ended up going to other film festivals to launch, which makes Cannes look terrible because they're now missing all these great auteur movies that Netflix is potentially providing because of this quirk in the law. So um, and so far, there's been no detente. I mean, everybody thought maybe they'd work something out for Scorsese, but nope. They're, Still a battle. They're, they're, they're claiming the Scorsese film won't be done in time, which is hard to believe. Right, because that's been in production forever. Yeah. Of course, yeah. Interesting.
0: So then from, from your standpoint, what happens is there's, there's obviously the, the, the reversal of, of, of all of this from, uh, with the idea that one of the giants, because there are now two more giants getting in the game. Warner Media under AT- AT&T, right? right? And then you have Disney who own a whole bunch of assets and they're mm-hmm. gonna have their own streaming. So now- And you already have Hulu and Amazon. Right, so now there's now there's gonna be a throttle of competition for subscription. So when everyone, and when you look at it, it's like, everyone's like looking at like, well, you pay 10.99 for Netflix, what's the big deal? But now all of a sudden you wanna get everything. you. You got to buy all these subscriptions, so now everybody's in the game, and then all of a sudden, people start to evaluate how they're going to consume, right? Because it's going, the competition's going to change
1: even that marketplace, right? Well, yeah, I mean the the common wisdom, and this has been true for a while, as um, a younger generation has been unplugging from cable. And, oh yes, absolutely. And, and 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 essentially going to these over the top services to be the way that they consume um, their their films and 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 television. Uh, that that this great unbundling was going to end up happening, which to some extent consumers have been asking for for a long time. Yes. Which is why why can't we do this a la carte? And I think what we're heading toward is the "be careful what you wish for" syndrome, which is. Now that things are unbundled, it's like now you're going to be forced to choose what you want and what you're going to be willing to pay for, and if you want it all, you're just recreating the bundle. So, That's right. So there, the, there's the, cost, the cost
0: goes back up again, and when because everybody cut like so many people cut the cord with the ability to get rid of the set-top box. It was like a it was like a liberation of home viewing because YouTube TV or. Direct TV on your, on your phone and all your devices streamed to your, your flat screen, gave you all the network
1: channels. So why do I have a monthly cable bill? I just pay for Wi-Fi, Internet, and right. that's it. That's right. right. And, and so the answer is that now you've got a bunch of competing entities that include Google, Apple, um, Microsoft, the um, uh, places like, um, gosh, I'm forgetting their name now, Uh uh, Hulu does it to some extent. Um, Amazon will definitely be doing it and is already doing it to some extent, but what they're doing is pulling all these services together and creating new bundles. You know, we, They are,
0: because Hulu repackages FX and all these other yeah. channels, right? And then they have original programs and they have movies and all that stuff, right? right.
1: Yeah. So it's, uh, Ro- you know, Roku's going to be doing it. There's, I mean, Apple TV. Yeah, Apple I mean, TV. So, too. so yeah, I mean, you know, it's like the, the, the rebundling will begin. I happen to believe that the real loser in all of this is going to be sports because right. because right now, an enormous amount of the money in the cable bundle is going towards supporting sports. And there's only a, you know, while yes, sports are going to be very important to a certain subset of Americans who will want that as part of their bundle. I think there's a lot of people who, given a choice, are not going to want to pay for ESPN or, for you know. And, and by the way, Disney knows that. Disney knows that; otherwise, they wouldn't be doing what
0: they're doing. Because they own
1: ESPN. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> you know, when you think, I, but when you look at the whole thing, like, like absolutely with sports. I mean, for me, I like I watch a certain amount of you know Premier League soccer, golf, baseball, whatever. <laughs> And as soon as I could as soon as I could get rid of my cable box and pay $40 dollars a month for YouTube TV, I got rid of the box and I only have internet. and I can watch all of that. And then the rest of my life is on applications on Apple TV that match all of these content subscriptions. So it's like, but now what so cable is like in terrorized by this because they were because they were selling content, that people didn't ask to buy
1: thousands of channels and you only watch 10 or whatever. But but see what's ironic about it is that you're still going to need the cable company or some, some equivalent company to give you your bandwidth. That's right. And, and so, right. And, and so the thing is that they'll probably start charging more for that aspect of things as people unplug. And then on top of it, they have the possibility of becoming aggregators and pulling together bundles over the top. So, you know, there's, and who knows they where, could fall into that into the game. They could get into that game. Right. I wouldn't be surprised if Google buys yeah, Comcast or something, or you know, I mean something like that, because then they Spectrum, be, Comcast, Fios, right, all these right, right, suppliers, right? Right.
0: Yeah. right. So that because they could because they're not listed in the in the candidates for content creation. Yeah, for there for content
1: delivery, but God only knows this could all conglomerate as well. Is what yeah. you're thinking? Yeah, or or you know, why couldn't some of the cable? You know, just like I said, Amazon could buy theaters. They could also buy you know a, a multiple system operator.
0: Right, and then and then ultimately it becomes a question of whether then sports become an app or whether like what happens does it so what all becomes become smart TV yeah I,
1: I i mean i'm lucky in that the team that i root for in the MLB is an out of town team so it means i don't have restrictions you're a chicago fan clearly yes oh, thank um, God. Um, and so what? It, so what it means is that that i don't i mean i don't need any other sports thing other than the MLB app that's a, it's all i need right because that's what you watch yeah yeah
0: yeah, so the whole idea of, like, what, you know, they oversell sports bundles. So you for during the NFL season, you're paying, like, crazy amount of money to get all the football games. And it's like, you know, but you're, you know, when you ask to watch one thing, they don't let you do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like it's so crazy. Yeah. So now at Columbia, what has been that you you've been you've been the chair and also a professor and been teaching there for many years what are you there currently today because you've been you've been participating there since 87 is that yeah, right wow. that's right yeah wow so you were there concurrent i guess with it M- started M- when M- i was at Cinecom, Orman. yeah okay
1: uh, yeah milosh was still titularly involved with columbia when i started there he was the chair but he wasn't around much. <laughs> um, but I did get to know him a little bit. And James, right? Uh, James Seamus came later. But yeah, right. yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, But I mean, I'm now, I think, I think I am the longest running faculty member at Columbia other than Annette Insdorf. She's the only one who's been there longer than I have. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but in any case, uh, I, I, I'm still teaching there. I'm still on the full-time faculty. I, uh, I teach four courses a year Um, I right now I'm supervising the um, the producing concentration but that's a rotating thing among the faculty it's just my turn this year Um, and uh, it's it's been a wonderful thing for me on the one hand um, it's a stabilizing force in my life in that you know as you have run down my whole history here you can see that it's been lumpy you know that there's been Lots of really interesting stuff going on. But lots of times when, you know, when I was trying to think about what was next and, you know, the teaching was um, as, as educational for me as it was, I hope, for my students in that it's, it keeps me current. They challenge me. They ask questions that that get me thinking about things. Um, you know, when I sit here and I ruminate with you about what the future of the film business is, if I wasn't teaching would i really have given it as much thought as i have probably not you know it's, it's you, you, i think one of the issues that everybody in life has is that you're so busy you never have a chance to sit and think um, teaching forces you to think right it forces you to think about where how how the
0: how history was and what it, the future can be and it's like you you've lived through all of these eras and tie together things that probably people don't think about even all the time in their careers they just pivot and go
1: right yeah this is uh or get stuck on one thing and then end up you know fighting a new business pretty much right Right. Yeah. yeah And uh, and last but not least, what
0: are, you, what are you doing on the producing end these days? We haven't talked much about uh, your reemergence in that. You've been going back to that a bit, right? Yeah, I
1: got, I've got three projects right now um, that are active and a few others that are less so. Narrative? Um, one's, a, one's a doc. Uh, the, the doc is something that um, is a, 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 about a little piece of the history that we were just talking about. It's about this guy, Don Rugoff, who was my first boss in the business. <laughs> Um, I've been working on it for a long time. I'm directing it as well as producing it. And it's just about done. I'm still tweaking a little bit. Um, And I'm in the film because somebody had to tell the story. Uh, But in any case, so that's one film that's coming up soon. Um, I'm in pre-production on a fiction film that Deborah Granick's going to direct based on the book Nickel and Dimed. Oh, neat. Um, And uh, that is... Moving forward and, uh, you know, we're in the early stages of pre-production right now. And then uh, I'm working on an adaptation of Joan Micklin Silver's film Hester Street for the stage. Um, wow, I remember the film, of course, yeah. That's, uh, that's something that um, I, I, I'm collaborating with a guy by the name of Michael Rabinowitz who has more uh, has experience in theater, unlike me. Um, and, uh, and Joan Micklin-Silver, you know, was involved, uh, in helping to kick it off with us. And, uh, um, so, so that hopefully will happen in the not too distant future. So those are the things that are keeping me pretty busy right now. Wow. That's great.
0: Well, God, I feel like we've covered, uh, uh quite a span of time. What do we start in 1975 and here we are. Fantastic. you making yeah. me feel really old. No, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. Younger than ever. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much for, uh, for, for coming here today. This has been absolutely fantastic. Uh, I hope to have you back again and talk about the next 30 years.
1: All right. Well, hopefully <laughs> there'll be something to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> what All a right. pleasure. Thank
0: yep. you. Yep. Thank you so much.